John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. The scene has shifted back to Jerusalem. Chapter 4 was focused again upon Jesus' second visit to the Galilee, the northern area of Israel. But now he's back in Jerusalem for a feast. We really don't know what the feast is. And it's not really pertinent to what's going on here. Needless to say, the point is there were a lot of people in Jerusalem. And Jesus finds himself there again. Follow with me as I read. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now you may notice in the English Standard Version, it goes from verses 3 to 5. We'll come back to explain that in just a certain moment. So, Jesus is there, these roofed colonnades where the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed are. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place, in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Would you bow with me in prayer and let's ask God's blessing on this time of proclamation. God, grant us your grace this morning that as we come to this time of preaching that your will would be accomplished. Father, we may or may not realize it, but we are just like this man. We are in need of healing. So, Father, we cry out to you. Cry out, Father, that you would do a work within us to bring about transformation and wholeness. Do this, Father, for the sake of your name, for your glory, that the world may know that you are God and Jesus Christ is your Son and through Him there is salvation. Grant these things, we pray, in the name of Jesus our Lord. And the church said, Amen. 
Ravi Zacharias tells the story of two sailors who had landed in England. Doing what sailors often do in a port, they made their way into the city and let's just say they engaged in things that unfortunately sailors have a bad reputation for. And they found themselves inebriated. It was early in the morning, it was foggy, and they had gotten lost and could not find their way back to the ship. So as they were wandering through the streets in the fog, they happened upon a man who was walking with direction and knew where he was going. It was an admiral. But they did not recognize this. Sir, they asked him, could you please tell us how to get back to our ship? We're lost. The admiral was indignant upon seeing two sailors in such a state and not knowing where they were. And in anger he looked at them and he said, Do you know who I am? One of the drunken sailors stepped back and was quiet for a moment. Then he said, we got to find somebody else. We may be lost, but this guy doesn't even know who he is. Sad to be in that state. Not knowing who you are, not having a, a sense of identity. Identity is crucial. Whether we realize it or not, much of our actions and our reactions are defined and guided by how we see ourselves to be. Identity deals with your character, your personality, who you are as an individual. Each of us have a concept of our identity. For good or for ill. And identity is important. After a while, say for example, a child who continually hears, you're no good, you're not smart. What will that child begin to believe about themselves after a while that they aren't good or smart? And you'll find they soon will begin to act in accord with that. And what is true for children is true for us as adults still. We will behave often how we see ourselves. See ourselves as incompetent, we will often live up to that identity. See ourselves as unable, we will often live up to that identity. Seeing ourselves as someone who can only sin. And we will live up to that. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Your behavior will often and more often than not be determined by how you see yourself in your heart. So for many, the water that flows from their heart is hot because it is their anger that defines them. For many, the water that flows from their heart is bitter because they see themselves as the victim who has been treated unfairly and so there is a bitterness that flows out of their heart. For many, there is a continual sin pattern because that is how they view themselves. And so the water that comes out of their heart is putrid. Well, the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus Christ changes your identity. And knowing who we are in Jesus is crucial. This idea of identity change in Jesus is found all throughout the New Testament. The book of Ephesians says that at one time you are alienated from Jesus, but because of the gospel you are brought near unto God. The Bible tells us that we were dead. That was our identity. But now we have been made alive. We were not a people of God. But now we are a people. We did not receive mercy. But now we have received mercy. We were blind. But now we see. We were children of wrath. But now we are children of God. We were lost. But now we have been found. All of those images point to the change in identity that is brought about by the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ. Now John 5 through 18 
records a clash of identities. It gives us insight into how identities shape us and how Jesus can change those identities. Because when you encounter Jesus, your identity will either be transformed or, because of a hardness of heart, become more entrenched in a refusal to change. You cannot meet Jesus and remain the same. The first man we are introduced to is one who is lame. We don't know his name. He is only identified by the fact he has an issue that keeps him from walking. He can't make it into the water. You see, legend had it that an angel would come and stir this pool and that the first person in it would be healed. By the way, that's why verse 4 is missing in the English Standard Version. The older, older manuscripts don't contain that verse. And it's believed that hundreds of years after this, as monks were copying the scripture, they wanted to explain why they wanted to get into the pool. Why the sick wanted into the pool. So in the margin they would make a note. According to legend, an angel would come and stir the pool. And eventually what was in the margin became a part of the text. But the older manuscripts don't contain that. But the point is, this man believed that if he could get into the water, he would be healed. But he couldn't get there. That's why Jesus' question takes on an added importance. Verse 6, Jesus looks at him, knows he's been there 38 years, and asks the question, Do you want to be healed? Now on the surface, this seems like a no-brainer. Of course you want to be healed. But I wonder if this question is not as much about the physical infirmity this man had as it is about his heart. At the risk of overanalyzing this passage, I want to ask you to consider something with me. For 38 years, this man had been hoping to be healed. What do you think happens after 38 years when you have a hope that is continually dashed and you live with disappointment? Would it not be possible to come bitter, angry? And then look at the man's response. Verse 7, I have no one to help me in the pool. For 38 years, hoping to be healed, never happening. Now we find out there is no family, there are no friends. This man is isolated and alone. Is it possible that he has defined himself solely by his infirmity and that in his anger he has driven everyone away? Is it possible that his frustration has been erected like a fence that keeps everyone at bay? And here is Jesus asking this question. Do you want to change? Do you want to be healed? Are you willing to let go of the anger and the bitterness? I think that's why when he comes back to him in verse 14, whenever Jesus finds this man again, whether it's an hour later or a day later, notice what he says to him in verse 14. See, you're well, you're walking. And now he makes this statement, sin no more. Now here we have to be very careful. Jesus is not teaching that every illness is directly related to a sin. In John chapter 9, there is a parallel account. A blind man in John 9. And Jesus is asked about the blind man. Okay, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither sinned. So you cannot draw a direct line from sin to sickness. 
We, we can't do that. And we should not become judgmental to make that judgment. However, that doesn't mean there can't be a connection. The Bible does show that there are times where illness comes about as God's disciplining hand because of sin. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 were stricken dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns the church when they come to take communion. He says, don't do this hastily without discerning the body of Christ because many of you have been stricken sick because you haven't done that. So while we cannot say that every illness is due to sin, we're not in that position, we cannot go as far to say that sin is never present. Because sometimes there is a simple cause and effect with sin and sickness. Now follow with me. Sin always destroys. Always. There is never such thing as a victimless sin. Sin destroys relationships, destroys your walk with God, and seeks to destroy you personally. Now let's take something that becomes a sin that is, is prevalent in our society. And that is unresolved anger that is not handled in a God-honoring way. Now this is just an example of what I'm getting at. Anger in itself is not bad. It's what we do with that. Jesus was angry. But often what do we do with our anger? Usually it's loud, angry, outburst. Punch a wall. Kick a ball. Take a fall. I just had to throw that in there because it rhymed. We deal with it in unhealthy ways. We yell. We play games. Silent treatment. There is an unresolved anger that seems to permeate our society. Not handling anger the right way will create physiological changes within you. Wake Forest University, after extensive study, found this, that two hours after you have an angry outburst, two hours after you lose it, your chance of having a heart attack doubles. People with repressed anger are twice at risk for heart disease, sin, sickness. Anger, unresolved anger that you carry around increases your risk of stroke. Anger weakens your immune system and makes anxiety worse. You see, there can be a connection between illness and sin. That's just one example. So this question Jesus asked, do you want to be healed, is more than just rhetoric. It's often pointing to asking, do you want your weakness, your sin, your anger to be resolved so that you can truly be made well? And I think the question comes to us, do we really want to be made well? You see, sometimes our sin, our weakness, our struggle becomes our identity so that we justify it by saying, that's just who I am. I can't help it. You knew I was like this when you married me. And it becomes the, the, the sign of who we are and our characteristic. But understand that we cannot follow Christ and use as an excuse, this is the way I am. I don't want to change. Because Jesus came to bring about change in your life. Jesus came about to reverse the curse. And not just reverse it, but to take away that sin and create a new person that is there. 
If you'll pardon me what may be a, a silly illustration to make the point of how Jesus does this. I want you to imagine with me a moment that scene where Jesus first identified with sinners. The baptism of John the Baptist or where John baptized him. Now imagine for a moment that John's disciples see the crowd coming and they say to themselves, we've got to get organized. We've got thousands of people coming. We need to help John out so he knows exactly what's going on when he baptizes. So they come up with this idea. They set up a registration table for everybody coming to be baptized. And they're going to have name tags. And just to help John out, they say, this is what we're going to do. So John will know how to specifically baptize. We're going to ask every person to identify their primary sin. The line forms in front of the table and they begin talking. The first person is in front of them and the disciple says, what's your name? My name is Bob. He writes Bob on the name tag. Now, Bob, what's your most awful sin? Bob, him and Hosni says, well, I, I did steal money at work. I'm an embezzler. So he writes on the name tag, Bob, embezzler. Hands the name tag to Bob. It goes on Bob's shoulder. Step over there, Bob. The next person in line is named Susan. Susan, what's your most awful sin? Well, it's embarrassing to say, she says, but, but I have a habit of slandering people. I like to gossip and I say things that aren't true. They write, Susan, slanderer. They hand her the name tag, wait over there. Gordon is next. Gordon, what's your sin? Well, my, my neighbor's got a, a Corvette that I really, really want. And I covet it every time I see it. All right, Gordon, covet her. Here's your name tag. And on it goes, and the line gets longer and longer. The disciple's working. The next person steps up. What's your name? Jesus. All right, Jesus, what's your sin? Jesus, what, what's your sin? You don't have Jesus sees the stress of the moment. He says, this is what I'll do. So he steps over. He comes to Gordon. Gordon, give me your name tag. Jesus takes Gordon, the coveter's name tag, and places it on himself. He comes to Susan. Susan, give me your name tag. You're a slanderer. Now I'm Susan, the slanderer. Bob, you say you've stolen Bob, give me your name tag. And Jesus steps into the water identifying with you and me wearing our name tag with our sin so that our identity is no more defined by those things because Jesus has taken them upon himself. We don't have to be defined by our sin anymore because of the gospel. You don't have to say the same. But there's one name tag that's very hard to take off. In fact, when Jesus comes to remove it, the people with this name tag, they tend to grab that name tag and put it back on themselves. And it's the name tag of legalist. The one who feels like, I don't really need that Jesus because I've got my rules, I've got my life, and I've got everything planned out, and I am superior. They would never say it in these words, but the feeling comes through clearly. I am religiously superior to everyone around. That's the next group that we meet the Jewish leadership John sets the scene for what's about to happen notice the sentence at the end of verse 9 now that day was the Sabbath this is foreshadowing what's about to take place the leadership's upset 
Now I want you to notice carefully what it is they are upset about. Because it's repeated. Notice in verse 10, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, this man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Verse 12, who said to you, take up your bed and walk? What are they upset about? That this man that couldn't walk had rolled up his straw mat, placed it under his arm, and was walking with it. No mention of, wait a minute, a day ago you couldn't walk. Wait, hadn't you been there for 38 years? No, 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 no. Because a religious line has been crossed. This man is carrying a straw mat on the Sabbath. Why aren't you mad about this? Don't you understand he's breaking the law of Moses? That was the attitude of the religious leaders. You see, when that command was given, the idea was this, that you stop your work. Obey the Sabbath. The idea, I think, clearly is if you're a carpenter, you don't work on the Sabbath. You rest, you recenter, you worship, you refocus upon God. But that wasn't good enough. Those consumed with moral affection, moral perfection had to get it down to the very dot of an eye. So this is what they did. They developed 39 divisions to define work on the Sabbath. 30, and I imagine in each of those 39 divisions there were paragraphs and sub-paragraphs so that it was thicker than the United States tax code. What do you do and don't do? Well, walking on the Sabbath, taking up your bed, was wrong. Now, note the irony here. There, there's no excitement over this healing. A man that couldn't walk is walking. There's no rejoicing over that. No, a rule's been broken. There was no excitement that this man may be, whoever did this, may be the Messiah. He's doing things. No, no, a rule had been broken. That's what legalism does. It ignores the person in the pursuit of perfection. The person in the heart of the matter, that's not important to the legalist. It's the appearance that matters. And it's very easy to fall into this thinking. I, I have to admit, this illustration came to my mind from my childhood about how we can play the role without our heart being in it. When I was growing up, every now and then we would drive over to Spring City to visit my great Aunt Sally. It was my grandfather's sister. And Aunt Sally was well known through Ray County for making tea cakes. She supposedly had the best tea cakes anywhere to be found. However, I have to tell you, I couldn't stand them. To me, they were as dry as Death Valley. In fact, it's kind of making me thirsty now. Just thinking about it, it's like post-traumatic tea cake syndrome. And I can remember when we would load up and I would start whining. Mom! She's going to have tea cakes. I don't want to eat tea cakes. Don't make me eat tea cakes. Now, my mother was a godly woman, but she looked at me and she said, you're going to eat tea cakes, and you're going to like them. And when Aunt Sally asks you how they are, you're going to tell her, thank you, may I have another. Now, I understand what Mom was doing. She didn't want to hurt Aunt Sally's feelings. She didn't want me to be a brat. It would have been much easier just to have said, Mark hasn't acquired a taste for tea cakes yet. Let me whip him a few times and then he'll appreciate No. But that's what a legalist does. It doesn't matter what's in your heart. As long as you play the role, 
It doesn't matter if your heart's far from there as long as you're following the rules. But Jesus won't leave us there. That's why this conflict increased because Jesus was concerned about the person and changing hearts. And so Jesus comes in to conflict with the leaders because he has come to bring about wholeness and to show the true meaning of the Sabbath. It's interesting that this healed man diverts attention away from himself to Jesus. He doesn't know who did this. They ask him, who said this? The man didn't know. It was crowded. He didn't take time. But it's interesting, almost funny to see what happens. Jesus finds him in the temple, tells him not to sin. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus. He rats Jesus out. This is, I wish there was a way to compare this with chapter 9 because in chapter 9, the man that is healed gives glory to God. He glorifies God. He unashamedly says, I'm not sure of his name, but he healed me and I give glory to him. This man is like, I don't want to upset anybody. And so he rats Jesus out. And it's in Jesus we see the third identity. The identity that really matters. Because it is the identity of Jesus that shapes and transforms all of other identities. The actions of Jesus in healing this man and telling him to carry his mat were shocking. What Jesus did to the legalist was appalling and to the lame man it was unsettling. Verse 16 we see that they're already persecuting Jesus. John is explaining what happened. It wasn't just that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. That was a part of it. But it's what Jesus said that the healing pointed to. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18 gives a summary. That's why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, here was the reasoning. Now, God is obviously in a class by himself. So when God gives the Sabbath, and He gives us the model in Genesis where it says, and God rested from creation on the seventh day, that means God wasn't continuing to create. However, let me ask you this. Was God still at work sustaining the universe? Was God still at work maintaining the universe? He wasn't creating. He rested, but He was still laboring. So Jesus says, my Father is working. And the Jews would say, yes, God was still working on the Sabbath, maintaining, pre preserving the universe. But then Jesus says, I'm working. He says, what God's doing, I'm doing. Jesus is lifting Himself up equal with God. And for those who would argue, Jesus never claimed to be divine. Read this text. This is a claim to divinity. This is Jesus saying, what you see God doing, I am doing. And not only that, Jesus is saying, He is the manifestation of God. And He is God in the flesh, come to give life. There is a subtle pattern that is developing in the Gospel of John, that of water. In John chapter 2. The water that was supposed to bring purification couldn't. Jesus transforms it into wine and brings joy. In John chapter 4, he's at the water of Jacob's well. That water cannot satisfy eternally. Jesus says, I'll give you the water that will satisfy eternally. He comes to this man who is by the pool called, called Bethesda. That pool cannot heal, but Jesus can. All throughout, Jesus is showing that the water we long for to satisfy our inner being, to bring healing, the water that is from God is found in Jesus Christ. That's where we struggle. It's hard to leave our familiarity. 
It's hard to leave the sins that we have allowed to define us. That's the question. The one who can heal asks, do you want to be healed? Because sometimes it's easier to stay stuck in sin than to risk sanctification. Rosaria Butterfield says it like this. She says it's like inheriting a garden. And for 10 years, you decide to let the garden thrive. Just let it grow. I don't want to inhibit that garden, so I'm going to let it grow. And guess what happens to that garden over 10 years? It's overgrown with weeds and grass, pests, nothing was ever done. And after 10 years, you finally decide, okay, I want to do something with that garden. But you come and you look at it and you think, I don't know where to start. So you go to a master garden and you say, this isn't fair. I want to trade this garden back in. I want something, something better, something new. And the gardener says, what did you expect for 10 years? You let it grow. You let it, quote, unquote, thrive. By allowing it to follow its nature, you destroy it. If we follow our sinful identities, it's going to destroy us. And here is Jesus saying, come unto me. Do you want to be healed? Come. I'll tear those weeds out. I'll give you life. For others, we find ourselves more like the Jewish leaders. Our identity is our morality. We're good folk. We do what's right. We're kind. We're polite. Because of that, we don't see our need for repentance. We have the outward appearance of goodness, but that outward appearance hides a judgmental heart that has no grace. What's on the outside doesn't reflect what's on the inside. Once again, I thought of my mother with this. She passed away in 2016, and I miss her greatly. And I often think of her whenever I'm in the grocery store and I walk by the Cool Whip section. The reason I do that is because as long as Imogene Herod was alive, we never had to purchase one bit of Tupperware. If you had a Cool Whip container, you had storage. That's all you needed. I can remember as a little boy looking in the refrigerator and seeing Cool Whip and thinking, I'm going to get some ice cream and chocolate and some Cool Whip. That's going to be good. And I open the Cool Whip to find its green beans from two days ago. I go to the next one and it's dressing. The next one is cream corn. The next one's got jello in it. What was on the outside did not reflect what was on the inside. I wonder if that's our lives today. We promise one thing, but what's inside is very different. And we can be like the religious leaders. We can become entrenched and say, I am good. Or we can say, Lord, change me. Because that's what Jesus does. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.